Welcome to Ask Andy featuring Andrew Redleaf. Today, Andy has a special return guest, Chris Bemis, and an exciting announcement. The last time we got together on your podcast, I think we summarized the discussion by saying that the future has a smile. This seemed like a perfect place to start today. First, can you maybe refresh us on how you arrived at that catchphrase? Well, sure. But first, a little bit of history and a tiny, tiny bit of math. Option trading really started in the 70s. The CBOE, I believe, if my memory serves, uh, came into existence in 1974. With the first regular trading in stock options, people started thinking about, all right, how should we price these things? What's a reasonable guess at a fair price? And Black and & Scholes probably first published, though, really the first thing that anybody would think of is, you know, all right, we'll assume that an option should be priced so that, you know, neither the buyer or the seller has an edge, you know, that the expectation is zero. And so we'll look at the payoffs over a distribution of future stock prices. What distribution for future stock prices are we going to use? Well, people said, well, what's the first thing that would come to anybody's mind? We'll use a normal distribution. So that was kind of the first pass at option pricing. You know, pretty early on or after a few years, it became clear to market participants that, you know, in fact, stock prices were not normally distributed. And it became, you know, really a cliché that the distribution is fat-tailed. Early on, it was more the right tail than the left tail that people noticed or people were concerned about that, you know, if there was a merger and acquisition, boom, somebody would announce a deal for a stock and it would open up, you know, 20, 30, 50 percent, which couldn't be accounted for with a normal distribution. But, you know, nobody really had any idea what you know, the right distribution was or how to think about it or whether it would be the same for uh, all stocks or all groups of stocks. So they started to say, well, what does the market think? Let's look at the prices that options have and we'll sort of work backwards from that. The issue with that, you know, and how the smirk and the smile came into being, if you know an option price, you know, there are an infinite number of possibilities of different distributions that could represent. In fact, you know, like to know the distribution, you have to know all the moments of the distribution and not just the mean and the standard deviation. So, you know, there was not a straightforward, quick way to go from a handful of option prices to what the distribution is. And no taxonomy, no sort of good description of what it was that you were doing. So what people started to do was um, describe an option as uh, the price as, okay, if the distribution is normal, what is the variance of the distribution represented by this option? And if you fully described what you were saying across the board, it would obviously not make sense because you'd have one strike price and you were saying, all right, if the distribution is normal, the standard deviation is 24%. And you know, for another uh, option, you'd say, well, <laughs> if the distribution is normal, the standard deviation is 
But, you know, a probability distribution only has one standard deviation. So you're saying if it's normal, but it's not normal, but you have a good sort of linguistic shortcut to go from an option price to a little bit of information about what the future distribution looks like. Over time, rather than people refining or formulating directly you know, what they thought the stock price distribution looked like, they got used to sort of describing it in terms of different option prices, and they got comfortable with a nice kind of smooth sort of curve for this kind of nonsensical taxonomy of if this is normal, what's the variance represented by this price? And very, very consistently out of the money puts had a higher volatility in that taxonomy than at the money puts. And the graph of that backward kind of description ended up looking like a smirk. So one of the things I believe is if one you know looks at the distribution of forward prices, particularly if one allows for periods of time longer than days and weeks, so months and perhaps years, I have a prior that that distribution is fat-tailed, but at least symmetric, maybe even right-tail fat. And then if you go back to this sort of, how do I describe option prices in that description in a way that people can sort of know what I'm talking about, you get a smile instead of a smirk. But the simpler and easier thought, <laughs> uh, now that I've you know sort of gone quite far afield, is that in the future, stock prices are as likely to have kind of discontinuous sort of fat upside moves as downside moves. And one of the drivers of that opinion is, I believe stocks are priced in nominal dollars, and I believe going forward, you know, sort of serious inflation is more likely than serious deflation. So if you look at, you know, what does the distribution of future inflation look like, that has a fat right tail. Right. It's funny, the pricing of options has that inverse property going from price to volatility and it seems that we all get acclimated to that in working with this particular asset class. I remember telling my advisor that there were different implied volatilities for different strikes. There was no amount of convincing him that it was a good model. It was, and, and his work was inverse problems in PDEs. So it's it this idea that like you, you have a structure and you back out parameters. There was no amount of talking through any of that that made him like what we do as a matter of course. One other thing that we didn't touch on here was the persistence of the left tail skew coming about in the debacle of portfolio insurance in 87. I mean, one of the things that I would suggest is people gave up the notion, you know, as a practical matter in pricing options, that the distribution was normal. They actually didn't give up the notion that, you know, options should be priced in a risk-neutral way. Whereas if one, uh, you know, questions that assumption and, you know, assumes that there's a tendency towards risk aversion, then the distribution could be representative of risk aversion versus an exact prediction. 
of the shape of the probability distribution for future prices. And then it would make sense that it's somewhat persistent. Mm -hmm. You know, if risk aversion is persistent, then you can have a world in which option prices are skewed. Mm -hmm. Left tail skewed. Left tail skewed. Yeah. So it would be more a reflection of market participants than the forward distribution of equity returns. Right. And people sort of move to, you know, waiting what market participants are saying versus history and a calculation, you know, when they started talking about, all right, implied, what do these options imply? You know, if this is the case and we make the assumption of risk neutrality, we can get to a future price distribution. If one has an infinite set of options, which people sort of take, they take the finite set of option prices they have and extrapolate all the mm -hmm. points in between, then you can go and say, all right, this is the distribution that that would imply. Mm -hmm. Somewhat anomalously, people don't really look at that, or it's not commonplace. I mean, commonplace, people will look at what the graph of implied volatilities across different prices looks like, but they won't look at what that implies about the future distribution. Yeah, you know my predilection. I'm, I, I tend towards the distribution. Do you have a view on why that's the case? I think it's mostly history and, you know, kind of a mean and a standard deviation does give you a decent amount of information about most probability distributions. Mm -hmm. And so they're used to that. Right. There's actually some good math that says if you only know those two things, you overwhelmingly should choose the normal distribution. But we know a lot more than those two things in these scenarios. So at the risk of doing too much math. Well, again, and here's a little more math, and I said especially over time, one of the reasons to prefer normal distributions is that things tend to converge to them over time and sample size. So coin flipping is zero or one, you know, at the discrete level. But if you flip a huge number of coins, the number of heads converges to a normal distribution, which would kind of imply that longer dated options should look a bit more normal. Should look a bit more normal yes. than shorter dated options. But I think, again, people have kind of used the heuristic that, you know, to get to the long term, we will iterate the short term as independent trials. Because otherwise, you know, if in fact, the long-term distribution is more normal, then you have to come up with some form of non-independence. Yes. What happened yesterday affects the distribution of what's happening tomorrow. And it's where it came from and not just where it is. Yes. So, so to get that, you have to throw away the uh, Brownian motion. Yeah. And the, on the math side, the idea of having conditional distributions makes things so hard. And I think that's ultimately why we default to this independent idea. So now that we've established that we like having a smile, the other reason or the other topic for today was that we're here to make an announcement, and that is that soon, very soon, you'll be launching a new hedge fund, X-Cube Capital Management. Do you want to say a few words on that? Well, sure. So, I mean, one of the fundamental ideas is making judgments and having priors about what future probability distributions look like. And the idea that there's some systemic mispricing in options. But I think where that really comes from, and we touched on it in the beginning, is I think it's likely that index options are pricing risk aversion. 
you know, and there are some spots where people are risk averse, there are others where they're risk seeking, there's still others where they're close to risk neutral. And so, you know, I mean, the very, very fundamental idea is to buy risk if one is getting paid for it, if, if that's what's being priced, and sell it where there's risk aversion or risk neutrality. I mean, one illustration that I think is maybe easier than the notion of skew in option prices, the yield curve is almost always positively sloped. You know, mm -hmm. More than 90% of the time, the yield curve has been positively sloped, and people see that and understand that. They know that their you know, fixed 30-year mortgage will have a higher interest rate than a variable mortgage, and longer bonds will have a higher yield than shorter bonds. Now, the persistence that the curve is almost always positively sloped makes sense if what is being priced is risk. You know, right. or, or price volatility. Longer dated bonds are more volatile. Therefore, you get more money extending out on the curve. When you start modeling stuff with the risk neutral assumption, mm -hmm. as most derivative markets do, then a positively sloped yield curve is a prediction about future rates, in particular, a prediction that rates are going higher. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't make sense that. That would be persistent, you know, that the markets could always be forecasting higher rates. I mean, that wouldn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. So um, that's a notion I want to try and exploit. And I think one of the first questions to ask when observing a market is, you know, what is it that's being priced? And is it apt to be persistent? The history of finance, you know, started with the idea, all right, you know, what are financial markets pricing. And the first thought that came to anybody's mind was, you know, all right, they're pricing risk, you mm -hmm. know, because you could always scale return by the use of leverage. So it would sort of make sense that, you know, all right, markets price risk. And that's another assumption that doesn't seem to be moved very much by the adducing of evidence. Right. In the things we've talked on and related to what you just said, there's, and we've talked about this a little bit, a few different standard ways of pricing. So we've talked about a no arbitrage pricing, maybe some behavioral pricing with the risk aversion. You know, because we got to this point, there's one last one, which is cap M. And related to this idea of risk, in equities, you're not compensated for risk. Historically, in corporate bonds, you have been compensated for risk. Do you have a view on the compensation for risk in corporates going forward? I think you have the phenomena where if people don't earn a certain rate of return, that they're basically out of business. You know, they mm -hmm. can't fund their liabilities without a particular rate of return. So to be risk averse is an oxymoron. To be right. risk averse is to just be certain that not going to achieve an objective. So to take a path that gives you a chance of achieving your objective makes more sense than certain failure. You know, a small chance of success is better than certain failure. You know, it's almost been an explicit, has been an explicit policy aim as a policy matter to lower risk-free rates to push people to try and do enterprising things. Risk-seeking. Back to X-Cube for a second. Other than the idea that birds have to fly and fish have to swim, what interests you most about starting uh, X-Cubed? 
Well, you know, I mean, the biggest thing is, you know, birds fly and fish swim. I think it's an interesting time because I do think paradigms are shifting Mm -hmm. and have shifted. And things that, you know, have persisted for decades are in the process of shifting. You know, so we talked about the persistence of left tail skew and index options. I suspect that not only, you know, has that always been sort of wrong or at least wrong in a Ritz neutral world, but that it's going to shift over time. And it's always, you know, fun, interesting, flying or swimming to have a prediction and watch as the world evolves. You know, I like observing the world, financial markets, and thinking about it. And it heightens both one's observational abilities and presumably the sharpness of, of one's thinking to be, you know, more rather than less intensely involved. So we've started some of the things for X-Cubed, and one of the features that I've noticed is that it's been very collaborative with those that have joined already. I've always heard this as a philosophy for hedge funds, but it oftentimes feels a bit like lip service. For you, having collaboration as an actual practice, why is that something that you've prioritized? The principal challenge of running a successful organization or more broadly making good decisions is properly exploiting partial knowledge. Mm -hmm. In lots of things, nobody has the complete picture or complete knowledge, but they're better than random. Mm-hmm. One can imagine uh, an SAT-style test in which the correct answer is the mode. Every correct answer gets you know more than any other, and yet no single person would get every single question right. Mm-hmm. So like the correct strategy, if it's open to you, is not to copy the person you think is smartest, mm-hmm. but to pull the audience. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? Well, I mean, you can't do it if information is siloed and sort of strict hierarchy, you know, I think limits that too. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's attracted me in doing this work up to this date already with X-Cubed is we've bandied about this phrase that data without theory is just conjecture. And that's similar to what you were saying with the... No, it's theory without data is is mere conjecture. Data without theory is noise. Yeah, in a perfect world, we did it that out, but I'm perfectly willing to be uh, corrected right there. Yes, exactly. So as a, a mathematician and a quant for a living, historically, most of the work I've done is based on using history and then some prior, largely from those around me who know markets at a deeper level than the math would say. But one of the things that's been attractive in doing this work is this idea of not just looking at history, but also overlaying the work with a worldview or a prior. Do you think the theory without data is just conjecture is a differentiator for what we're doing at X-Cubed? You know, I do think that's true. And I think, you know, now over the past handful of years, there's the old paradigm, you know, if you're good with a hammer, everything looks like Mm -hmm. a nail. Exactly. You know, over the last number of years, as we've developed the ability to collect and crunch more data, mm-hmm. 
there's been a real bias into, you know, trying to assemble noise into music without the intermediate step of having a sort of understanding of harmony and resonance mm -hmm. and so forth. Again, on the notion of collaboration and the necessity of an organization. You know, I know I am much more interested in theorizing than in crunching data. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and um, it was always very frustrating, you know, like um, in high school science, when you did a lab, you know, in I fact, that. <laughs> you knew the results. Exactly. But your lab technique probably wasn't that good. <laughs> Mine was not good, yeah. But I could uh -oh. take a derivative. <laughs> right. So you had to figure out what results are supposed to be yes. and then fudge the data if that, you know. In the broad context of hedge fund categories, uh, how would you frame X cubed? I think the conscientious effort to, you know, always have both a coherent theory and empirical support is unusual, you know, in practice, if not in pitch book. <laughs> the other thing I think is kind of distinctive is the blending of some pretty macro kind of conceptions, such as the future price distribution is symmetric or right tail fat with micro kind of implementation. Right. When one hears macro funds, you know, one thinks macro bets on macro things. Right. We will be implementing bets in a micro way, hopefully accumulating edge and positive expectation at the micro level, but incorporating larger conceptions. Macro and conception, not the same as macro and implementation that's right, usually discussed. Right. We need it. We need to find a word for that someday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, we're a micro-macro fund. Yeah. And macro things that nobody thinks of as non-standard macro things. Yes. So we've talked about uh, skew and the yield curve as some areas of interest. What are some other areas of focus? One area where we're pretty confident we'll uh, consistently have positions is trading continuously rebalanced portfolios against portfolios of some fixed weight. So the Dow is a price-weighted index. You know, nobody thinks price-weighting makes any sense, but, you know, and yet people do trade the Dow or look at the Dow. An equally weighted version makes more sense. And, you know, if one believes in capitalism and one believes in entropy, there's a theory that why equal weight will be better mm -hmm. over time. And again, in, in kind of the micro-macro, we want to add a little bit in the particular implementation. Right. I've always struggled to do um, an elevator pitch. You know, mm. I kind of ramble discursively, but the elevator line is low beta, opportunistic, multi-strategy. Currently, we are long a group of SPACs trading with a positive yield to the price at which one can redeem. Mm -hmm. Basically, a free option on uh, exuberance in the IPO market. I'm not as optimistic about it as some funds. It is something of a crowded trade. I think it's apt to be deadish money, but it is a free option. You know, that would be a strategy that, you know, I would not expect to be around in a couple of years. 
One of the things that's interesting is going back and talking about the smile and the right tail. You're starting to see individual equity options, many more that are priced symmetrically. Right. And even some that have, you know, fat right tails, Mm -hmm. which, you know, creates the opportunity to trade individual equity options against index options. And again, to think that that works, uh, one needs a prior about what the relationship between the individual components looks like across different parts of the distribution horizon. I think we've likely said it all. Do you have closing remarks about uh, this new venture? <laughs> you know, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> Though certainly I, uh, I, we, the group, welcomes questions from any accredited investor. Fantastic. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Ask Andy. If you would like to submit a question, please email askandypodcast at gmail.com. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs.